Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. We're just about to close the books on 2022 and what a year in the national park system it has been. We've seen catastrophic flooding, drought, and crowds, lots of crowds. Today, though, we're going to focus on some of the positives about being out and about in the parks. I've asked contributing editors Lynn Riddick and Kim O'Connell to join me to point to their favorite adventures and stories from the parks this past year. I'll be back in a minute with them to share our experiences. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to raise private support to deepen everyone's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. The Yosemite Conservancy helps visitors connect with Yosemite through adventures, volunteering, and the arts. It's the only nonprofit dedicated to supporting Yosemite National Park and funds grants to improve trails, restore habitat, protect wildlife, and inspire the next generation of nature lovers. Learn more at yosemite.org. Hi, Lynn. Hi, Kim. Great to have you guys back. Hello. How are you? Hi, Kurt. Nice to see you. Yeah, so this is going to be a fun podcast, um, Stream of Consciousness, all about national parks and what we've experienced in the park system this past year. And um, it's truly been incredible. And um, we've kind of shared some experiences, uh, Kim and I, um, personally down in in Florida at the Everglades early this year. And I guess uh, Lynn and um, you and I kind of vicariously, because um, I went to Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve, and then you went there um, a little while later. So um, I'm I'm sure um, we both had incredible times and came away with different perspectives. So why don't I start with you, Lynn? I mean, what was your favorite adventure in the park system this year? Well, I have to say that I really, really enjoyed my trip up to the Lyndon Bain Johnson National Historical Site. Aside from the San Antonio Missions National Historical Park, which is very close to where I live in San Antonio, um, the LBJ National Historical Park is just up the road, like uh, maybe an hour and a half. And I had never been there. Yeah. So um, this year I kind of pledged to sort of see what was closest to me in Texas. So I was able to go to a couple of places really close by, relatively, and I still have plans to go to Waco Mammoth National Historical Park in January. But I loved going to LBJ National Historical Park because um, I was so surprised. It, it told, really, it tells the complete story about the life of Johnson, um, his, his family roots, and all the way through his presidency and his death. And it was so educational to learn all about the domestic agenda that he was able to pass, um, along with the struggles of his administration with the Vietnam War, of course. But, you know, to, to see his whole story told there, played out, his boyhood home, his school, his, you know, the LBJ ranch where he worked as the Texas White House and died there. And, I mean, just so many parts of his life that are on display there. There's a his old car collection is housed there. His um, he's got a gift closet. He used to give visitors to the LBJ Ranch gifts when they came, like a Stetson hat, or a, a cufflinks with the presidential seal, or pens with the presidential seal. And there's just a closet just stacked with these things. And he um, just has a an airplane hanger there. And the the ranch is still a working ranch with cattle that, you know, was there when he was a rancher and president. And, you know, the fact that he and his family set aside hundreds of acres 
you know, for the national park, never to be disturbed is just, it's just really a fascinating story. So, I mean, I was very enthusiastic about learning about this and you can tell that I'm still very enthusiastic when I tell about it because I don't know, it was such a surprise. I mean, you, you're driving down the road inside the, the ranch and you come upon the family cemetery and there's the headstone for LBJ and, and Lady Bird Johnson, as well as their his parents and grandparents. And it, it just it just feels so real. And really, he was the very last president who was born in the American frontier. So that's historic, you know, in and of itself. So that was my favorite trip of uh, 2022. You know, Lynn, um, living in Texas, that's a whole nother experience. I mean, I can't imagine. I mean, I, I've talked to you and, and Rebecca Latson, who spent time in Texas, and that is no small state to get around to go to these national parks. I mean, back east, you'd be traversing, you know, two or three um, states to, to get to some of these destinations. I mean, Big Bend. But, you know, what you're saying about the, the Lyndon Baines Johnson site is, you know, a, a takeaway. Um, what we tried to do this year at the Traveler was to explore some of these these overlooked gems in the national park system, and you know what you found there and what you brought to life in the in the podcast is a perfect example of of all the overlooked gems that are out there across the national park system that people don't appreciate. And uh, I'm really really glad that you could get out there and that we could you know try and move away from you know constant coverage of the Yellowstones, Grand Canyons, and Acadias. I mean, they're all wonderful national parks, but there is really, really so much more to the national park system. I have to laugh that she says that she just went up the road and it was like a two-hour drive just up the road. That's Texas for you. (laughs) And I have to tip my hat again to um, interpretive park ranger Brian Vickers, who who gave me this tour. And we, I was there for four or five hours, I believe. And, and he was so impressive and so knowledgeable and such a historian and just really knew his stuff. And that just, we see that a lot when we are out and about um, and talking to experts in the national parks. It's just so impressive, their level of knowledge. And so that's one thing that it's very enjoyable to share. Yeah. They're very right. passionate too. I, I find find that when you come across park rangers in the parks, you know, they, especially ones that have been in those parks for a while, like they've they like embody the stories. They've told the stories many times. It's almost like they're telling family stories. And so, you know, I always recommend to travelers or people going to the parks to try and if you see a ranger, go up and talk to them because they probably have their favorite stories that they tell about the people and places that they're interpreting there in that park, you know, they're just, there's so much passion among the park service staff and it's really cool and inspiring for us to talk to them. It really is. And, um, you know, I wish, I wish we had more time to get out there because, you know, as a reporter, you know, you're on assignment. And so you want to get to the destination and and find the story. And, and sadly, you usually have to move on to, to go to someplace else. And, um, you know, that was one thing that I, discovered, you know, I took two weeks this year to get out into the national park system on a road trip to uh, Nebraska and Kansas. And at each park that I visited, I visited four. And I think I spent a half day, maybe a little longer than a half day at each park. And I could have spent, you know, a day or two or three at some of those national parks. I mean, they're, they're so fascinating and so rich in, in their history and um, in some places in, in their, their scenery. But um you know, Kim, I think um, I'd have to point back to our, our time in Everglades back in um, April, was it? Um, the the sluice log with um, oh, yeah. the ranger was just, um, it, it sticks in my mind and is always going to be there. I mean, what an experience. That, that was amazing. And again, like Everglades is one of the big name parks. So it's not a park that's kind of off the beaten path. You know, it's not necessarily easy to get to, but it's right outside Miami. So it's a park that a lot of people go to, but we managed to find a, a pretty unusual experience in that we went off the road, up to our ankles, sometimes up to our, actually up to my thighs at one point in that wet slough with the park ranger, the a wonderful Yvette Cano, um, who led us through the slough. And I know there were, we were wondering if there were, you know, alligators in the deeper parts and just all the bromeliads hanging um, from the trees and I know that um, there was a wonderful podcast earlier this year that you all did about um, sounds in the national parks. 
And that's what I remember too, from that sluice log that we did in the Everglades. It's just how all the sound, I mean, the, the sloshing through the water and the birds and the wind through the trees. It was like such a multi-sensory experience. I know that we really tried to convey that in our coverage of in different ways, you know, through podcasts, through, you know, the story that I wrote and through our interviews and that kind of thing, because it was such a fully immersive, maybe not fully immersive. We never fell down, but like, <laughs> but it was a very immersive experience. Definitely, definitely. When I was kind of thinking about our podcast today, I had that on the top of my list too, was one of my, one of my most favorite experiences of the parks this year. Yeah, one thing we, we we failed to do, and I guess it it means we're gonna have to go back there. Is you know we heard about walking the Anhinga Trail at night after the sun goes down, and and the sounds really really come to life. I mean that's that's one thing when you when you close off one of your sensory um, abilities, your other senses kind of ramp things up, and so I can just try to imagine being in the dark on the Anhinga Trail and they say you can hear the the alligators and you know the the birds and the insects it must truly be a fascinating experience I volunteer for that assignment actually have family in Fort Myers that I have to go down and visit um, and so that would be a great thing to do while I'm there somebody's got to do it yeah take take one for the team Lynn will you I will this is Kurt Rappenschek. I'm talking today with uh, contributing editors Lynn Riddick and Kim O'Connell about some of our favorite experiences in the National Park System this past year. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy the Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. Interior Federal Credit Union offers a large suite of savings products, including secondary savings accounts for budgeting, individual retirement accounts, health savings accounts, education savings accounts, money marketing accounts, and certificates. Start the new year off with an account at Interior Federal Credit Union and get ready for all the adventures 2023 has to offer. Not a member yet? Go to interiorfcu.org and click on the membership icon on the homepage. Federally insured by NCUA. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It's also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia. You can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. Whether it be strategy, business planning, change management, board development, executive search, or diversity planning, Potrero Group is here to help. They mix a depth of experience in the parks and land space with a breadth of best practices from other industries. For more information or to schedule a preliminary conversation, go to potrerogroup.com. P-O-T-R-E-R-O group.com. Okay, we're back with Lynn and Kim talking about our favorite park experiences um, in the National Park System in 2022. You know, I've got to go back to that that road trip I took to Kansas and Nebraska. Um, Scotts Bluff National Historical Park, just amazing. I mean, if if you're a, a, a fan of the American frontier and um, Western expansion of the country, you have to visit Scotts Bluff. And, um, you know, you can see the, the trail ruts where the, the wagon trains came through. They've got a couple wagon trains mocked up there. And just the history that, that is steeped into the rocky landscape there with the, the bluffs is just, just phenomenal. And, um, you know, the, the stories that they have to tell. I was fortunate enough to go out with a, a ranger and walk part of the, the trail out there. And he was explaining, you know, where the wagons came through and... Um, the different personalities that were there. I mean, William Henry Jackson, I had, I had heard his name for a long time, but I never really appreciated who this gentleman was. And Scotts Bluff National Historical Park brought him pretty much to life for me because um, with this ranger, we walked up to this one point where Jackson, as a, a young bullwhacker, I mean, he was with some of the um, wagon trains that went west and his job was to kind of round up the oxen every morning and, and get them into the 
the reins and uh, whatnot to pull the wagons. And uh, as a young man in the 1860s, I think, um, camped there. And he went on to have this incredible career that, you know, spanned into the, the 20th century. I mean, he was an incredible artist. He um, went on some of the expeditions to, to explore the West with, I think, Ferdinand Hayden and whatnot. And um, just a phenomenal gentleman and, you know, was a great writer and uh, an artist that we found out later in life. And uh, a lot of his artworks, you can see them in, in Scotts Bluff National Historical Park. Um, it was a really, really enjoyable visit. Homestead National Historical Park um, in eastern Nebraska. Just a, another chapter in Western expansion and learning, you know, about the Homestead Act and, and the lands that people were able to acquire or try to acquire because not everyone succeeded in proving up their, their holding over five years because uh, there's some pretty rough places out there in the, the Dakotas and trying to eke a living out of that. Hard to imagine how they how they did that. Although if you go to the the park, you can go into the archives there and read some of the journals and find out about the hardships and whatnot. And again, I I have to go back to you know what Lynn explained about the Lyndon Baines Johnson and and this is the the experience and the richness that you can get from the national park system going to these parks and, and spending some time to under understand the, the stories that are being interpreted there. Kurt, I thought it was also good, your follow-up article um, about the difficulty of the Homestead Act with Black Americans trying to uh, secure what was rightly theirs as well. That was definitely an interesting aspect, Lynn, and it's not a story that you hear that often. Um, And again, just, you know, the hardship and coming out of slavery and and being able to to get land for yourself. I mean, what an achievement. What a... um, a monumental achievement that they were able to um, secure in their lives. You know, hearing you both talk about these amazing historic places reminds me of the value again of these national parks and the value of historic preservation. I actually actually have a degree in historic preservation. I've always been a history buff. One of the things I love about historic preservation is that, you know, you get so much more than you can get in a book or just a book. We're all storytellers, we're writers. I really value the written word to convey information and history. Writing is essential, but sometimes you have to go to a place and really walk in the footsteps of these people for them to come to life, like Kurt said. And and so I always feel so appreciative that there were groups of people that took the time to say, this place is worthy of preservation. We should hold on to these, these buildings or these tracks, these ruts in the ground or this closet full of hats and trinkets or whatever it is. Somebody said, this is worth either, you know, reproducing if they don't exist anymore or preserving so that you can actually feel the human scale of what these people lived through and, and did, you know, in their lives. And I just think that is so very powerful. And then you couple that with, writing like books or the great stories we put on the traveler and it's just such a fully immersive and educational experience that can be very meaningful and i definitely got um the impression from the folks i talked to this year that the park service is um going to be taking a broader approach to the history presented in some of these national historical sites because there's dollars in the budget to redo uh, displays and waysides that will be more incorporative of ancient peoples and their story, and certainly Native Americans and their story. And I know some of that is happening in the Saratoga National Historical Park, where I had interviewed um, one of the interpretive rangers there, historians. So, you know, those efforts will help give an even deeper uh, story about those lands that we are are seeing and, and that belong to us. And it's kind of overdue, frankly. I'm so glad it's happening, but it, you know, it's it's definitely something that we've been should have been doing a long time in the park system. I'm really pleased to see it happening. I just recently published a story on the Traveler about some archaeology happening at Fort Raleigh to try and find um, you know artifacts and information about the the lost colony that took place there, right on the coast of North Carolina. But part of the this sort of archaeology is to help feed a broader look at the interpretation of what happened at Fort Raleigh National 
historic site, which the story, the main story there has been and always probably will be about the landing of these English colonists to try and create a settlement there on Roanoke Island in the so-called New World. But there has been a much greater effort to understand and interpret the lives of the Algonquin indigenous people that lived there and who, in many cases, had to adapt to the arrival of these colonists. And we haven't heard as much about their perspectives. So I know the park is working really hard to tell those stories as well. And one more thing that I think is very interesting is that they're also trying to incorporate a later story, which is that Fort Raleigh was also the site of a freedman's colony after the U.S. Civil War in the 19th century. So that's much after the lost colony. But, you know, the Park Service is saying we have these sites set aside. It has a particular name on the top about what it's meant to interpret. But a lot of these places have multiple stories and it's, you know, incumbent upon them to tell as full a story as they can. So I think that's really great to see. You know, and there's a real need for it. Um, um, the cultural units of the park system um, have struggled. They, they haven't enjoyed as much money. Um, well, frankly, the entire national park system hasn't enjoyed as much money as they, they really need. I mean, uh, Mount Rainier National Park in Washington State had to, had to shut down Paradise, so to speak, during the week this winter because they just didn't have the staff, the resources to safely um, provide access to Paradise. And so it's only going to be open on weekends, um, which is a real disappointment to the locals who love to head up to Paradise for snowshoeing or sledding or skiing and whatnot. Um, but it's just an example of the, the hardships that, that some of these parks are going through. And um, I think we're going to see a campaign in 2023 to, to raise the profile of the cultural parks in the park system and the needs that they have. And um, sadly, the needs are many just in, in bringing new exhibits um, to life and, and, and broadening um, what they have to tell. They, they really need the resources to do that. So, Lynn, you know, you and I both had an, an opportunity to visit Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve in Kansas, um, months apart, and we we both kind of, I think, came away with different experiences, or, or we we sampled different aspects of the park. And you know, it's it's been a place that I've been writing about for years on the Traveler, and I've always wanted to go visit it. And and frankly, you know, two things attracted me to it was one the tall grass prairie, which, you know, I think once upon a time there was 170 million acres of tall grass prairie that would get five and six feet tall in the, the end of the summer across North America. And I think today there's maybe 4% of that left. And so I wanted to be able to go out and see it. And of course, I went at the wrong time. I was there in uh, late June and uh, the, the prairie was only about knee high at the time. But the other aspect I wanted to see were, were the bison. Um, I've got this thing about bison. It's not my totem animal. That'd have to be the wolf. But um, the, the bison are right right up there. And when I got there, um, I got to see the prairie. I, I took a walk around, and uh, I spent some time with a ranger out there um, searching for the bison. We didn't see a lot of bison. I think you saw more when you were there. But I came across... Um, an aspect of Tallgrass Prairie National Preserve that I didn't realize was there, and that was the magnificent home of Stephen and Louisa Jones. You know, back in the 1800s, they actually went in reverse. You know, they were out in Colorado, and they came back to the Flint Hills of Kansas, where they basically, you know, cemented their legacy. They they started up this, this ranch, this cattle operation, and um, quite an operation it was, and they built this mansion, an 11-room mansion, you know, back in the day, and they were so affluent, they were making it so big that they had a a, a three hole outhouse, <laughs> so to speak. I don't know. I don't know if you got to go into the the mansion and explore the grounds there, Lynn. But you know, so much history and so much beauty. It just blew me away. Yeah, and what about the barn? The barn was totally unusual, and um, you can't see the barn in the in the podcast. Lynn, you're probably better at explaining or describing it um, as a journalist, a, a broadcast journalist. How would you describe the barn for the listeners? Well, it's huge. It is And huge. the thing that impressed me the most was there's like this earthen ramp, for lack of a better word, that goes up to the second story of the barn. So the, the wagons, the horse and wagons could... Um, walk up that ramp and deposit their wheat or whatever crop right there in the upstairs level of the barn. And I don't know that there's anything um, that grand anywhere else uh, for that time. Very interesting to see. 
And, and it is huge. I don't know how many cattle they could fit in there if they needed to fit cattle in in the wintertime, but just blown away huge. And, um, you know, they had these stone walls. I, I forget how many miles of stone walls that were hand stacked that um, still exist there today. And one thing that I, I stumbled upon later was um, William Henry Jackson was there. I mean, after after his bullwhacking career, I mean, he turned into this photographer of the West and uh, an artist of the West. And I actually found a picture he had taken of one of the stone walls. And I think the barn was in the background. But you also got to spend some time with the superintendent there and go out and um, get a little close with the bison. Yeah, that's right. I was able to talk to park superintendent Kristen Hayes. And she drove me all around the park and we got to look at the bison herd there. It's about 80 head right now. And the Nature Conservancy really manages the herd um, on park lands. And um, Superintendent Hayes told me about how that is managed and how these bison came to be and how they were brought in from Wind Cave National Park. And so they are genetically pure bison. And that's very important to keep the species going um, without miscellaneous genes from cattle and residual genes from when cattle and bison were crossbred a hundred years ago. So it's historic in that respect. Um, it's very cool to see, you know, this big herd of bison just roaming and grazing and they move pretty fast. Um, the first day I was there, I saw this big herd and, you know, before I knew it, they had just crossed over the road. I was, you know, I don't know, a hundred 125 yards away. They weren't close to me, but they move really quickly. You know, they take a bite and keep going. And um, it was just interesting to see because it gave you uh, a really good picture of what this part of the country was like 100, 150 years ago. Really, maybe not just this part of the country, but much of the country where bison roamed free and you know, hundreds of thousands of bison all over the land. And so that was exciting to see. It was really interesting to learn about the bison and how they cope. Yeah. And I was really envious of you because you got there towards the end of the summer and the tall grass prairie was tall. <laughs> well, it's funny because I have a friend in Kansas and I said, have you ever been to tall grass prairie? And he said, uh, no, um, there's not much to see there, is there? And I'm like, well, you know what? <laughs> there is. The first day I was there, I passed one person on the trail. The second day I was there, I passed zero people on the trails that I was on. And the third day I, I was there, I passed one, um, one runner who was running the trail. It looked like he was maybe training for a marathon because he did many, many laps of this one particular trail. So I thought there was a lot to see. The trails are great. There's a lot of birding. It's just very relaxing. Um, I don't know, still, quiet. And uh, it was interesting for me to see the different varieties of, of grasses. And like Kurt said, some at this point were six, eight feet tall. And so that was kind of, that was interesting, definitely. So there is plenty to see there. And if you want a place that you can almost have to yourself, that's a good place to go. Yeah, that's another aspect of going, you know, to these these parks off the beaten path, as it were. You don't have the crowds about you. Um, you know, the the parking lot at Scotts Bluff was half full at best at uh, Homestead National Historical Park. I think there I could count the other cars on my hand. And, um, you know, Tallgrass Prairie, the same thing. Fort Larned, I think mine was the only car in the parking lot. And um, it's true that, you know, some of these parks, you have to want to go there. You're not exactly going to stumble across some of these places on the, the main highways. You have to get off the interstates and, and go down the county highways and in some cases the county roads. And I had wanted to go to Fort Larned, which is in western Kansas, because it um, is supposedly the best kept fort from the frontier era. And I had been to Fort Laramie um, National Historical Site in, in Wyoming um, many times. And um, I'm, I, I love that park. I love Fort Laramie. Um, but I'm kind of disappointed that it's not fully complete, so to speak. And if you go to Fort Larned, I mean, it looks like the cavalry left yesterday. I mean, the, the, the buildings are in great shape and um, 
kept the way they, they, they were for, you know, over 100 years now. And it's a part of the Western history that, you know, a lot of people skip over for some reason. And again, there was another dark story um, that I found at Fort Larned dealing with blacks, the the Buffalo soldiers and the, the racism that existed there. And, you know, there was a white white captain who was in charge of this black battalion of, uh, black platoon of uh, Buffalo soldiers. And, you know, he was um, accused of starting this fire or... There was a fire that broke out and and killed a bunch of horses and uh, burned up a lot of gear from the Buffalo Soldiers. And while they never identified who actually started the fire or how the fire started, this captain was um, held responsible. And so they docked his pay for over a year or so. And, you know, these are are stories of Western history that we don't hear too much. We don't read about that much in, in the history books. And so sometimes when you when you take the time to to go to these places, you'll you'll discover uh, a chapter of American history that you weren't aware of. This is Kurt Repencheck. We're talking with uh, Lynn Riddick and Kim O'Connell about our visits across the national park system this year. We're going to take a short break, and we'll be right back. The Everglades Foundation, the only organization whose sole mission is to restore and protect America's Everglades. Learn more at evergladesfoundation.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Grand Teton National Park Foundation is a private, nonprofit organization that supports projects that protect and enhance Grand Teton National Park's cultural, historic, and natural resources. By funding initiatives that go beyond what the National Park Service could accomplish on its own, foundation donors improve the visitor experience and provide benefits to the national park system for decades to come. You can see their successes at gtnpf.org. Okay, Kim, I know you want to go back to Everglades, but it's not going to happen this year. We've only got a week left. Um, What other experiences? You were up in Acadia this year, weren't you? I was in Acadia, and hearing you all talk about going off the beaten path, um, I was thinking about how for a park that's mostly set on an island off the coast of central Maine, which you have to get off the main highway and kind of wind your way down to the coast, it's amazing how crowded Acadia is and getting more crowded by the day. I know Traveler ran a story earlier this year about Acadia's 4 million annual visitors, but at the same time, having been to Acadia many times now, it's just undeniably beautiful and transportive to be on Mount Desert Island where most of Acadia is. And I've spent time on the other satellite parts of Acadia. And I was back there this July But I did manage to go to a place that's off the beaten track at Acadia. And I've sort of been very slowly working on an audio postcard that I (laughs) recorded to post on The Traveler, hopefully it will happen in 2023, about having visited the ruins of the George Door estate at Acadia. There are ruins at Acadia. And while they're not hard to get to, they're actually quite close to Bar Harbor. You, You know, it's really not far to get to these ruins. I think you could even walk from the town of Bar Harbor, where certainly other parts of the national park, you have to drive from Bar Harbor, which is the main town on the island there. Um, but it's still kind of hidden. Like it's not Jordan Pond. It's not Cadillac Mountain. It's not, you know, Eagle Lake or some of these places that everybody goes to in Acadia. And what it is, George Dorr, of course, is like considered the father, the founder of Acadia National Park, put a lot of money and effort and energy into creating this national park there. And of course he had what they call a cottage I just did air quotes, even though this is a podcast, <laughs> a cottage, um, cottage at Acadia. And of course, it was a multi-room estate overlooking, you know, a bay, the beautiful uh, bay there, the, the ocean. And it was just absolutely stunning. But it fell into disrepair and, and closed. And, it, you know, the site is maintained as part of the National Park, but it's basically just ruins. And so when you hike there, all you can see is the foundation, the footprint of the house, and then, but you can still see the herringbone pattern of the flooring, this beautiful herringbone padding of uh, pattern in the flooring. And it was just really 
and fascinating to be there. And what I found particularly striking is that a bunch of trees have grown up through the middle of this house um, where the living room used to be. So it's really kind of spooky and neat. And I did um, record some things there that I'm hoping to compile into an audio postcard, like I said. Um, so it was great to you know, actually go to a park I've been to many times that's very popular and try to seek out a spot that isn't as popular. And whereas anywhere else you can go in the summer in Acadia, you will be with your fellow men and women. Like there are lots of people, those trails are crowded. You can't get away from them. Um, they're, they're getting you onto a bus whenever they can now because there's just so much traffic in Acadia. But when I went to the George Door Estate Ruins, it was just me and the, my friend who I was hiking with. That was it. We were the only people we encountered. And so that was pretty special um, to do that. So yeah, beautiful place. I never, it never gets old to me. You know, another corner of Acadia that um, is is overlooked, I think, by a large part of the mongering hordes who, who want to go up Mount Cadillac, um, Cadillac Mountain, is the Scudic Peninsula. Yeah. And I wasn't there this year. I was there a few years ago for a conference. And I tell you what, um, I like wild, raw places that aren't developed. And the Scudic Peninsula is that. And it's got a gorgeous campground um, for RVing or tent campers, whatever. But then, you know, it's got the coast and you can just go out and, you know, they talk about Thunder Hole over on Mount Desert Island. Well, it thunders over there in the Scudic Peninsula and um, just just raw beauty just takes my breath away. And uh, there, there's some history there. I mean, there was a uh, a Navy detachment that that spent time there in a, a beautiful facility that they they lived in that is now part of the Scudic Institute and housing for guests who come um present or, or work at the Scudic Institute um, during a summer, but um, definitely a, a, a beautiful aspect of Acadia that um, hopefully will continue to be overlooked um, by the, the, the millions who go to the Mount Desert Island aspect of the park. I, I keep um, bringing up things that you can't see on, on a podcast, but right to the right of me here, um, I keep a map of the Scudic Peninsula right by my desk because it reminds me of how wild and beautiful that part of Acadia is and how much I enjoyed being on those trails when I was there. Because again, I was always alone. I was pretty much all had the peninsula all to myself there. And, and it's just as beautiful as any other part of Acadia, like you said. Yeah, it really is. And, you know, I, I think um, we'll, we'll commit right here. I mean, 2022, we committed to to bring more of these uh, overlooked gems to uh, the National Parks Traveler readership and audience. And um, I think we got to keep doing it in 2023, ladies. I mean, there are so many incredible places that, that don't get the love, so to speak. And um, the richness that they can, can offer for your visit just my, blows your mind away. I guess I have to say that I'm a proponent of seeing the ones in your own backyard as I kind of committed to doing this year. Um, I, went down to uh, Padre Island National Seashore, where I had been a ton of times because I live maybe three hour drive away. I can't say it's my favorite beach, um, but it was really fascinating to learn about the history there, which I didn't know. To me, it was just a, a beach on the Gulf of Mexico, but there's oil history there, ranching history. Uh, the US Navy used to do target practice there on the beach. And it's a challenging national park because of the trash issue, which, you know, all this marine debris washes up uh, from the Gulf of Mexico and winds up on this very long stretch of, of Texas shoreline. And there's tons of volunteer groups that come out several times a year, uh, several times a year to pick it up. And so I think that's kind of an interesting story, too, how folks are very involved in their park and they want to keep them uh, looking good as best as they can. So it was fun to get down there and just take a different look at the history there. Yeah, no, it's a fascinating aspect. Um, you know, I, I'd be remiss if I didn't admit that I did go to Yellowstone and Grand Teton this year. Um, <laughs> well, you're the closest to them. We're jealous. <laughs> just just up the road, four or five hours. Right. <laughs> but, um, and here's another aspect. Um, my wife and I went to, to Grand Teton, um, I think it was in June, before the crowds showed up. And we had a beautiful cottage at, or a cabin at uh, Coulter Bay. And we took our sea kayaks and we spent a couple of days out on Jackson Lake, which uh, sadly has been drawn down because of the drought in the West um, to, to shunt the water downstream and over into Idaho, where it's um, uh, the, the farmers have uh, 
higher water rights than the national park does. But still, um, no crowds in, in Grand Teton really in in June if you know where to go. I mean, obviously, if you go to the Jenny Lake area, yes, you'll you'll run into thousands of people. But um, we were out on the water. I think we were the only boaters we saw um, between muscle-powered and motorized boats and um, just beautiful. I mean, flocks of white pelicans and whatnot. And then we ended the year um, in uh, in Yellowstone in late September. Um, and, and I should say we ended the paddling year because um, I, I continued to go to some parks after that. But, you know, being on Yellowstone Lake in a kayak in the West Thumb region of the park gives you an entirely different perspective of the geothermal features there. And um, obviously there's no crowds because you're out there on the water by yourself. Um, there were some groups of kayakers, but, you know, still 12 or 15 people and, and you're not just right close to them. And it was just beautiful. I mean, um, the, the water from the thermal features coming over the rocky cliffs, you know, falling into the lake, just beautiful. And just to say, too, that there's really no shame if you find yourself in a crowded park because you're there and that's what really counts. If you're lucky enough to be able to find a park that's not very crowded uh, during a time that you're able to go, that's even better, but it's not possible for everybody. But we're just always happy. I know I am when we get to go to a park, period. Sure, sure. And, you know, one thing that we try to do with the traveler from time to time is, is to point out how you can piece together trips with various parks. And and I did that in um, in late October in northern New Mexico, and we crossed off three parks, although I could we were only on the road for four days, and I could have spent four days in each of these parks. But again, overlooked gems, uh, Valles Caldera National Preserve, um, Bandelier National Monument, and Pecos National Historical Park, and just different stories. Um, Valles Caldera, again, it's a volcanic park. It's got these huge, expansive meadows that are they're rimmed by um, pine um, pine tree forests. Um, anybody who, who watched the Longmere television series um, some years ago um, will recognize the, the Longmere cabin, one of the cabins there at Valles Caldera that they used in one of the, the episodes of the, the te- television show. The, the park is relatively new. The Park Service just got it in 2016. Um, they're still trying to figure out what they want to be when they grow up, so to speak. I've got an interview coming up with the superintendent in January to try and get the Park Service's vision for this um, in, immense 89,000-acre preserve that um, right now 35 cars a day can drive through it, just 35. And um, there's a lot more potential um, for that park in terms of backpacking. I mean, there's incredible birding, there's elk herd, there's uh, um, skiing in the wintertime, cross-country skiing. There's just so much uh, untapped potential there that um, hopefully the Park Service will be able to bring to the fore and manage carefully. And there's actually um, a part you feel like you're in Yellowstone National Park in the, the southwestern corner of Valles Caldera where there's some springs, um, the Sulphur Springs area of uh of the park hot springs. You've got fumaroles and uh, we did a piece on that. And uh, again, very different confluence of landscapes in this one park. Bandelier National Monument. Um, I can't say enough about that place. I want to go back there. Um, you've got this incredible ancient culture that lived there in, in the Frijoles Canyon. And um, they, they dug what's called cavates, if I pronounce that right, into the 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 cliffs that are volcanic tough, and it's a, a softer rock that they were able to dig their um, their shelters out of. And then you've got these uh, structures that the Civilian Conservation Corps built back in the 30s, the greatest collection of CCC structures in the National Park System right there in um, Bandelier National Monument. And then Pecos National Historical Park, um, if I got that name right, I mean, there's so much there. You Again, you've got ancient cultures um, with Kivas and Pueblos and the, the Spanish influence when they came through in the 1600s and the 1700s and how they tried to subjugate the, the people there and um, the battles that took place between the ancient cultures trying to drive out the Spanish. You've got the Santa Fe Trail that comes right through there and there's a, a ranch that used to be 
um, uh, a way station of sorts that uh, actually during the Civil War served as a, a hospital for Union troops who were injured in a, in a battle, um, a Western battle with the Confederate troops that were trying to sneak up on the Union in Colorado. There's just so much history that, you know, one day is not enough. I mean, you really need a, a week at least to take in those three parks. And then, of course, Los Alamos is right there with the, the Manhattan Project aspect and uh, the nuclear history of the United States. Just incredible. I was going to say, too, listening to both of you about going to a, a crowded national park or trying to figure out a different way to see a lot in a national park, you know, um, even when you go to a park that's traditionally crowded and then you're going in the high season and you might find yourself at the most popular overlooks or most popular sites surrounded by other people. One thing I found this year is it maybe just vary the time of day that you go. Of course, if you go far into the backcountry, you'll see less people. We started this conversation talking about maybe doing a night hike, you know, but I'm reminded of the fact that my family and I were lucky enough to go to Alaska this summer and we did a podcast about that. Um, but we went to Denali National Park. And of course, during the middle of the day, especially in the front country of Denali, where, you know, you don't have to take the park bus. The first 15 miles were so crowded. We were there in late July. It was when the whole world felt like they were in Denali National Park. But because it was summertime and the sun set so late, and I have teenagers who want to stay up all night as it is, we found ourselves at about 11 p.m. one night awake and wondering what to do. And we were staying just outside the National Park. So we said, let's drive back into the park. So we went back into the park and the sun was setting at about 11.20 p.m. And it was a beautiful sunset, but because of the time, there was hardly anybody in the national park. So we had the whole park road to ourselves. We could get out of the car, walk around, and we happened to see these two beautiful moose just grazing off the side of the park road, which I'm wondering if they would have been there during the height of the day with park buses going by and more traffic. Maybe not. So I think just by sort of varying the time of day that you can go into a crowded national park, you know, um, you might get a special experience and not be surrounded by other people. No, you're absolutely right. Um, and even during the, the height of summer, you can you can alter your patterns and avoid a lot of the crowds. I know you can do that at Yellowstone um, at, at the old faithful complex, you know, go out after dinner. And even after sunset and walk the boardwalks and, you know, if there's a, a moon out, it's great. If there's not a moon out, that's even better because the stars overhead are just phenomenal. And to, to listen to the, the, the gurgling uh, mud pots and fumaroles and the geysers going off. And again, you know, it's what I, what I said early on is, is different senses take over and you experience a different aspect of a national park. Just phenomenal. Well, ladies, it's been great fun catching up and, and talking about our favorite visits. And uh, yes, you, you in the back, Lynn. <laughs> well, before we close today, I really think we ought to give a tribute to P-22, the famous mountain lion um, that had to be euthanized last week. The mountain lion that was sort of roaming free in Los Angeles Griffith Park and um, was pretty instrumental for all of the funds raised to construct the massive wildlife corridor um, over US 101 west of Los Angeles that is connecting the two sides of the Santa Monica Mountains National Recreational Area. Um, this poor mountain lion um, had sort of a bad ending, um, but had to be put down because he was struck by a car, but had all kinds of other issues related to kidney failure and parasites. And um, it was a very sad story, but he lived a great life. And thank you to Beth Pratt of the National Wildlife Federation, who was this cougar's advocate, who, who did so much promoting this cat and why we need to find a better place in our lives for wildlife so that they can live and we can live in harmony together. And so I did want to um, put a shout out to P22 and, and what he's bringing about. Definitely a fabulous wildlife story um, that the parks bring to life, so to speak. And um, he, he did leave an incredible legacy behind. And um, it's going to be 
interesting to watch going forward how that overpass um, serves wildlife and if it manages to, to reduce the number of uh, collisions between wildlife and cars there on 101. Right. And this, you know, Save LA Cougars effort brought in, you know, millions of dollars from all over the globe um, because p 22 story was told um, in a way that made people want to support this effort and it helped people understand the needs of mountain lions and how much, you know, a huge territory for roaming and reproducing that they need. So it's sad uh, that the animal had to be put down, but it, it is a good story in the end. Well, Lynn and Kim, thanks so much for taking time out um, to, to share your experiences in parks with me and with our listeners. And to our listeners, um, I would invite you to put a comment um, on, on the podcast page on The Traveler about your your experiences in the national park system this year and your, your favorite places, um, whether it's a Yellowstone or, or whether it's a, a Fort Larned. Um, they're all wonderful places. And um, maybe you've got some tips you can share with uh, other Traveler readers. Ladies, thanks so much. See you next year. See you next year, Kurt. Thank you. Thanks, Kurt. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. Next week, Mike Murray from the Coalition to Protect America's National Parks and Kristen Brengel from the National Parks Conservation Association return to reflect on the big stories from across the national park system in 2022. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park Audio Series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.